Mark. It's, it's good to hear that over and over again, isn't it? We've been studying this story for a number of weeks, and it's good to just read it together each time. I often think maybe we should just read the part that I'm going to teach on, but I think it's good just to hear the whole story and get that context over and over for us again. So, there's this old Spanish proverb. It says, all laws go the way that kings desire. And I think it had its origin in this interesting story from the 12th century. At that time, the church in Spain was debating whether they should use the Gothic prayer book or the Roman prayer book in their services. So eventually, they got King Alfonso VI to get involved in this debate. And he had an idea. He decided that he was going to settle the matter by throwing both of the prayer books into a fire. And whichever prayer book survived the fire, that's the one they were going to use. Well, the Gothic prayer book survived the fire. He didn't like that, so he threw it back in and went with the Roman prayer book anyway. And I think this is where the proverb comes from. All laws go the way kings desire. And this is a strategy we learn early, early on in life, and we tend to continue to use it. I still use it. Most often, Tito and I play cribbage together, and that's when I use the strategy. So if he wins the first game, I just say, well, best out of three. And if he wins the second game, best out of five. If he wins the third game, best out of seven. I'm going to keep going until I can bend it to my will. And I think we're all familiar with that. Of course, playing games is one thing. The strategy becomes problematic, though, when we try to introduce it to God. We spend, many of us say we want God's will for our lives, and we try to seek it, but I think mostly what we're doing is calling out for another chance to get God to align his will with ours, when in fact maybe we should be praying for our will to line up with his. So Jesus has a lot to say about this, in our story of the woman at the well. We're at the point where the disciples have just got back from town. They went into town to buy food and they are encouraging Jesus to eat. And he responds with one of those classic metaphors that goes about 2,000 miles over their head. And they react with, what, what are you talking about? You know, what, what are you talking about? Has someone else, someone, has someone given them the food? He says, I, I have food you know, that you know nothing of. And so then they respond with, could someone have brought him food? <laughs> Jesus is always trying to bring people into his kingdom. Always. The problem is, we're so firmly planted in our own kingdom that we miss the invitation. Just in this story, remember when Jesus offered the woman living water and she thought he was talking about a river? And she was all confused by it. And she said, do you really think Jacob would have spent all his time building this well if there was a river nearby? And a few days before this story, Nicodemus had the same reaction to when Jesus talked about being born again. And he said, well, how can someone be born again? And here the disciples think he's talking about real food. John is always using this in his book when he's telling the great story, this contrasting elements, this well water, divine water. Human birth, divine birth. Human food, divine food. And here, we're at the apex of the story. It's finally clicked for the woman. She leaves behind the well water. We looked at this last week. She runs back to the village carrying living water. And Jesus now is going to contrast human will and divine will. 
And this is challenging stuff to hear. Maybe that's why hardly anyone showed up today. It's going to be too challenging. But remember this. When Jesus challenges us, it's never towards condemnation. It's always just an invitation to a better way. Jesus said something very interesting. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden light. And the psalmist said, I run in the path of your commands, for they have set my heart free. This is the big paradox of the gospel. God's way is really our way. The way we were made to live. The most authentic form of human being. The challenge is in coming to terms with that. It's reimagining that to follow, to obey, to wear God's yoke is to be finally and truly free. That just doesn't make sense to us, right? We think of freedom as being free of yokes and free of rules. But in God's kingdom, that is freedom. To follow, to obey, to wear God's yoke is to finally be truly human. It's to finally and truly be who we are. So Jesus says... My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Spurgeon calls this the golden sentence. And James Boyce writes, In essence, these words are an expression of what was undoubtedly the keynote of Jesus' life. Telling us that above all else, Jesus lived to do God's will. The sentence begins with a brilliant nod to Christ's answer during the first temptation. Remember, Jesus answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This wasn't simply a cute saying he used to spar with the devil. This was the defining limits of his life. As all human, his life was defined by doing God's will. In St. John's Gospel alone, this is the consistent theme we find, to do the will of the Father. Here's just a few examples. But myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is the theme of Christ's life while he was fully human, just like we are fully human. This is what his life was about. And notice he calls God of him who sent me. He uses that, Jesus uses that 25 times in this gospel alone to what he calls the Father, him who sent me. It has that idea of obeying, right? Jesus sent, God sent him and he followed that sending. And he also talks about accomplishing his Father's work a lot. I have testimony awaited in that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. These very works that I am doing. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work I gave you to do. And, and that, all of this, following God's will, is realized in his haunting cry from the cross. It is finished. So, about following God's will, author Gossip writes, To be allowed to serve God and his fellow men was all Christ asked for from life. Think about that. That's all he asked for. And this is as fully human. Don't forget that. 
And in one of the great Messianic Psalms, Jesus said, I desire to do your will, O my God. And then there is St. Paul's understanding of, of Christ's following of the Father's will, which is his classic hymn to humility that he wrote to the Philippians, where Jesus decided to put everything aside and just follow the Father's will in coming here. So, this is where it can seem to get so challenging and so difficult. Author Gossip captures it perfectly as he continues his thoughts on this, and he says, And a Christian is a person who has caught something of Jesus Christ's spirit and is growing up into his likeness. A Christian is a person who has caught something of Jesus Christ's spirit and is growing up into his likeness. So, the question is, does that define us? Is that how you would define yourself as a Christian? Have we caught something of this spirit, something of this spirit, and only want to follow God's will, or are we still quite comfortable following only our own will? Now, before we answer that question, let's talk first about what God's will might mean for our lives. So often I hear Christians struggling with the great question, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will? Should I take this job or that job? Should I, love he should I live here or there? Should I marry this person or stay single? Should I buy this car or that truck? Should I have kids or should I have a dog? Should I have both? Etc. 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 Should I? Should I? Should I? Should I? Should I? Now listen, I'm not saying wanting to discern these things is not a good thing. I'm not saying that at all. And I understand that within Christianity there are many opinions, there are theories, there are even doctrines on the will of God. You, you can read books and you can hear pastors teach on God's revealed will, God's determined will, God's specific will, and on and on it goes. And perhaps there's an important place for understanding these things. But sometimes I think there's so much talk that we have maybe missed the forest for the trees. See, I've met a lot of people through the years who wrestle with wanting to discern God's will for their lives, yet they lead lives that at the most fundamental level do not look even remotely like the life of Jesus Christ. Sure, they know their Bible, and these are usually people that go to church and will get into any theological argument at the drop of a dime. They, they have seemingly good exterior morals, but they don't live like Jesus lived. Loving God and loving others is not what their lives are about. Jesus said, follow me, right? Oh, that's Nietzsche, that's not Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. I am pretty confident that we can follow him no matter where we live, if we are married or not, or what job we might have or not. God may care about what job we take, but if we are not about loving God and loving others, then my best guess is the job choice suddenly becomes irrelevant. That's what's so beautiful, once we understand it, about God's will. Loving God and loving others can be done all the time in all the places. But sadly, I think focusing on the little things, where does God want me to go, what does he want me to do, is taking the church out of the game. I've listened to men and women talking about following God's will for their lives by building ministries or being successful business people or going on mission trips or doing this or doing that. While all the while their families are a mess and their kids are dying for lack of love and attention and Christ-like modeling in their lives. 
I mean, do we really think God's will for us would ever call us to not be Christ-like in our love for those we are most responsible for? You know, one of the most painful things for me about having kids who are very aware is they, they know what I do. They know what I teach. They know that I spend most of my life studying and reading and, and trying to discern what God's love is and then encouraging people to love others in the same way. And so then when I'm not loving, I hear from my kids, oh, that's Christ-like dad. And it's usually when I'm hanging up the phone after screaming at some customer service representative. It's like living with little Nietzsche's, that's why I have this great Nietzsche quote. <laughs> Nietzsche said, I will never believe in the Christian Redeemer until they show me that they themselves have been redeemed. That is such a powerful quote. And it's at times like that that I realize God's will for our lives is very, very simple. Love the people we are with the way God this is exactly what Christ was doing when the disciples asked him to eat. He was loving this woman into the kingdom. And then while looking around at the fields and the people coming from town to meet him, he talks about the harvest. Listen, God's will is that none should perish. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So then, following that will is loving people into the kingdom. That's what following the will of God is, loving them into the kingdom. In a word, it's being like Christ. So yes, it is true that if we call ourselves Christians, we should be doing the will of God. And if we're not, then I think we have to ask ourselves why. But hold on. If we're not, don't be dismayed. God is not disappointed or angry that we have been missing the point. He is simply continuing to invite us into the only kingdom there is that will truly satisfy us and allow us to live lives of deep satisfaction. Now, I want to make a side note here, but it's really not a side note. This is a very important piece of this. We talk about this a lot here at Cana. We're going to continue to talk about it. But sometimes I don't always bring my teaching down to a practical level. Sometimes I leave it up there as theory for everyone to figure out on their own, which I think is okay. But, but I want to be sure that this, this is a perfect point in this story to remind everyone of this, to make sure we're... we're we're, in this, we're, we're on the same page because I don't want to be misunderstood. Whenever we explore this idea of being like Christ, of living out our Christianity, okay, of loving God and loving others, if you will, there, it is easy to understand it in ways that are very problematic, in ways opposite almost what I believe the Bible teaches. So I want to take time to explore two of those most prevalent misunderstandings so to be sure we're not going there whenever I'm, I'm talking about things like this and when we're reading the Bible.
Bible and we come to these commands. All right? The first most prevalent misunderstanding is we start to think we do this to make God love us more. We do this to make God closer to us. No. No, no, no. Try to keep in mind that great Philip Yancey quote that we use here a lot at Cana. There is nothing we can do that can make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Think about it. God loved us so much he died for us while we were his enemies. If he loved us that much when we were his enemies, how could we make him love us more? And how could we make him love us less? Okay? Now, yes, certain things can make us feel closer to God. That is for sure. But as far as God's closeness to us, that is a given and that is a constant all the time. In fact, one of the last things he said to his disciples was, Lo, I am with... Oh. Did I not give you the rest of the gossip quote? I'm sorry. So now I'm waving at Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He said that, all right? So that's one. Be careful not to go there when we're talking about becoming like Christ. It's not about making God love us more. It's because God loves us so much we want to be like him. The second one is even trickier. Because it's easy to start thinking that this is about doing better. Doing better. Oh, I have to do better. I have to try harder. I have to be a good Christian. I'm always failing, so I need to do better. No. No. Remember, God is the only one that saves us, and God is the only one that transforms us. Okay? We have to remember that. It's really about thinking better. It's really about thinking better. Let me try to give an example. From right now, you guys know I'm in the middle of soccer season. So I always meet these young kids that want to be great soccer players and they don't like to run. I, that is impossible. Those are the kids I always say they should check out chess club or something. But it's impossible. So if they're ever going to be great soccer players, they have to start by first changing their thinking. And they got to start with like, thinking that they actually might want to run, and then thinking they like to run. And then maybe they'll start running, and the soccer's 95% running. But, but now, my illustration falls apart a little bit as we get to the end of it. Because what happens is once they change their thinking, they still have to do the running and running, and the more running they do, they'll get better at it. With becoming like Christ, transformation into Christ-likeness, is more about coming to a place of better thinking that puts us in a place where finally God in us can change us. Okay? So for example, to recognize that doing God's will is in fact the fulfillment of our desires, to think that way, to acknowledge that, well, we'll be in a place then where we are surrendering our own desires. Do you see what I mean? It's about better thinking. That's why the gospel is always filled with this paradox of terms of, of wearing God's yoke and surrendering your life and taking up your cross. Not because those are bad things, but that's ultimately what will free us. But we've got to think that way. 
God's will is other-centered. It's other-centered. That's why he died. It's other-centered. So thinking better about that will slowly chip away at our self-centered living. And when that self-centered bastion, and it is a massive castle that we all live in of self-centeredness, when that finally starts to collapse because of chipping away at it with better thinking, then God in us will really start working the miracle of transformation. Other-centeredness changes lives. Our daughter's you know, struggling now with homesickness being so far away. One of the consistent things that I continually give her is, who did you help today? Did you go and hug someone else today? Did you think about someone else today? God's way is our way. It's our way. Consider this. And, and this is something that, you know, you guys hear me joke with Tito a lot, but this is why I love him as part of our community and, and as he's a dear friend, but also just part of our community, is because he and I talk about this a lot. We, we share this a lot. And he has said to me over the seven years that we've been here more than once, he said to me, you know, I don't believe it yet, but just keep preaching it. And that's authentic, that's authentic, that's real, that's wrestling, okay? So I want you to think about this. And this, this is the last example, and then we'll wrap up. We know God's will is to love our enemies, right? We know that. Why do we know that? God died for us while we were his enemies. So A, B, he says it clearly. Love your enemies. So I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I've got to tell you, there is nothing Christian about trying to qualify that phrase. Okay? I know why we do it. I get why people do it. But I am telling you right now, it doesn't matter what you might claim to believe theologically or doctrinally. If you are loopholing love our enemies, we're missing the whole point. We're missing, and I'm not being political. I'm just being straight up. This is the gospel. God loved us while we were his enemies and tells us quite clearly, love our enemies. Okay, so let me get back here, all right? As long as we practice in our minds hating our enemies, we are never going to be in a place to allow God to transform us. Do you understand? See, this is why it's not about doing better. Being like Christ is not doing better. It's thinking better. It's thinking better. And I know it seems so hard at first because enemies are the hardest thing to love. But it's just thinking about it. You want some practical steps? Those of you that love social media, go back six months and hit delete on every post you made that is offensive to a group of people that you think are your enemies. There's some practical way of loving your enemies. Stop engaging in that rhetoric. What's the point? What are you trying to save? You're not saving the world. You're spreading hate. Let's spread love and acceptance and understanding. We can still speak the truth. I'm not talking about that. Speak the truth all we want. But you can do it in ways that do not divide us and them. Becoming like Christ is thinking better. 
thinking to be in a place where God will change us. Nick Lannon says it this way. Nope, that's author gospel again, sorry. For Christians then, it is not practice makes perfect. It's something closer to Christ's perfection frees you to practice. I love that. He loves us. And out of our love for him, we respond by thinking better that, oh, this really is the best way to live. So, what is troubling us? What in our lives right now are troubling us? What's causing us to worry? What's causing us to despair? What's causing us to wish for better days? What wells are we running to for satisfaction? Jesus has an answer. To do the will of the Father. That is the beauty of God's will. It satisfies our deepest longings. Think about it. Hunger is the quintessential human longing, right? Everybody knows hunger if you don't eat. Even that was satisfied in the act of loving another into the kingdom. Wow. Imagine if we just trusted him every now and then. Bailey says, it is the sustaining nourishment received when one is engaged in fulfilling the will of God and accomplishing his task. And author Pink wrote, Jesus shows us how to serve. And the first great principle which comes out here is that joy of heart, satisfaction of soul, sustenance of spirit, food, is to be found in doing the will, performing the pleasure of the one who sends forth. That is such a powerful quote. Jesus teaches us how to serve, yet the first great principle is that it satisfies us. Let's try this food that Jesus himself ate. Let's live into the kingdom where doing the will of the king is like sitting at a perpetual feast. Amen.